their entirety twice in the Old Testament. The, the classic appearance is Exodus chapter 20. That's at Mount Sinai. But they're repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And there's a, there's a nuance there about the fourth commandment. So I wanted to make sure you, you heard that as well. But we'll focus on Exodus chapter 20. Uh, recently, we had a family that had been members here for a while, and they moved to another town. So sadly, uh, they've moved on. But really great family. Husband, um, really impressive guy, very physically strong. He would be like what your grandparents would call a strapping young man and um, healthy, fit. Also, he and his wife both said that during their time here at Downtown Prez, they really experienced a lot of spiritual growth and renewal. They were very encouraging sometimes in their feedback about things that God was doing in their lives, which was great for us to hear. But this, uh, this husband slash daddy found himself in a, in a season of life, long story short, where he was having to work seven days a week. And I'm not just talking about that all of us have, you know, certain responsibilities, activities every day of the week. But I mean, actually work for his employer for a season for seven days a week. And as, as I watched him, I think Jake would say as he watched him, that here's a guy, healthy, fit, strong, spiritually growing, excited about the stuff he's getting. We just watched him. Uh, we just watched hope erode. And just watch the erosion of joy in his life. And he, you know, he believed all this stuff that we talk about, would embrace it. But he was just so tired. He was having to work every day. No break in sight. No putting work down. And every day was going to feel like every other day. And it just ground him down. And I... As we're looking at the Ten Commandments, I feel the need to say this over and over and over because these can just seem like this standalone list like God gave, like here are my instructions for principled living. These are commands thundered out from the top of the mountain, carved in stone by God's own hand, and the, just thousands of people at the base of the mountain, thousands of Israelites who just left slavery, very recently became ex-slaves after really a culture of slavery, after hundreds of years of slavery. Their life in Egypt did not have days off, did not have vacations, did not have mandated weekends, did not have benefits. It was work, work, work. That was your life, was to toil for the Egyptians. And in the law of God, from the mountain, God commands ex-slaves to do this. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. This is the only commandment that begins with this, this word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock 
or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come this morning and we could all tell our stories about wanting rest, craving rest, needing rest. We could also all tell our stories about when we thought we would rest, that we kept reaching back for work. We kept reaching for the things that occupy our, our already busy hearts. How we struggle with these things. And so as, as busy people needing rest deep down in our hearts, we ask you again to help us. And through your law to show us good news. That the law would point us to the one who can give us good news. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just finished reading um, this book. It's called Deep Work by a guy named Cal Newport. He lives in the D.C. area. He teaches at Georgetown University. I think computer science is his area. But an impressive guy. He's on the tenure track to become a full professor. Written scholarly journals in his field, published in that way. Uh, it's also written popular level stuff like this. This is not an, an academic book. It's a popular level book. But he's reflected a lot about how we work and what work uh, is good work and what work is distracted work and how hard it is to do undistracted work where we are culturally because there's so many things that can interrupt and get at you all through, uh, really, at any time. So he writes this book about how do you do deep work, and I, I think it's a good book. I want to read you one thing that jumped out at me. He talked about this, this ritual that he has cultivated in his own life at the end of the day. And he calls it his shutdown ritual. And what he's describing is that, you know, you get to the end of the day, but there's still all these open loops, right? Open loops that haven't closed. It, you know, for him, the paper I haven't graded or the article that I need to finish or the follow-up I need to have with this colleague or the conference that I need to prepare for, whatever. And you can't finish it that night. So he said he started what he calls a shutdown ritual. He would make a list of just all these things that are undone, all the open loops, He would write down the particular action steps that he was going to take. I'm not saying everybody needs to do this. I'm saying this is his ritual. The particular steps he needs to take to to lean into it and deal with it. And then he says when he gets through doing that, he does one last thing. I'll, I'll let him tell it to you. He says, to end the ritual, I use this information to make a rough plan for the next day. Once the plan is created, I say, shut down complete. And my work thoughts are done for the day. Now, the next sentence, he says, the concept of a shutdown ritual might at first seem extreme. And that, I mean, like just to be in your kitchen saying, shut down complete, sounds like a phrase about the Death Star or something like that. But, but he says, there's a good reason for it. The Zygarnik effect, which I had never heard of. This effect, which is named for the experimental work of the early 20th century psychologist, Bluma Zygarnik, describes the ability of incomplete tasks to dominate our attention. Now that, I understand. Um, 
even if you have generated a to-do list for that day, and on those rare occasions when the planets align and you actually have done and struck through all the things on your to-do list, you haven't closed all the loops in your life. There's always undone work. And there is this thing deep down in our heart, I think, that just like resonates and automatically understands what he's talking about. I mean, he says, it may sound weird for me to be alone in my house or I'm in front of my family and I say shut down complete, but he essentially concedes if I don't do something like that, if I don't have a ritual like this, I just can't stop. Like I might cease my activity for the day but I'm still churning on the inside. It's, it's like the work equivalent of being in bed and it's nighttime and you've got hours more rest time. The lights are out and the air conditioning's the way you like it and the pillow's the way you like it and you can't sleep. Just because you're lying there in the dark in the bed and you're not having to be at the office doesn't mean you're resting. That's what our hearts are like. And I think we of all people need to think deeply about what does it mean with all this work, not only work that I have to do with the office, maybe vocational work or family work or that kind of thing, structured work, but what does it mean for me actually in my heart, my deep down insides, the control center of my real life, what does it mean for me to actually set it down and find rest, to find true rest. So let's look at this command because this is a command about work and about rest. And let's look at it this way. I want to look at the command and then what I'm calling the ditches, and I'll get to that in a second. So the command, the ditches, and the rest. The command, the ditches, and the rest. And what we've tried to do looking at all these different commands is to just stop and say, what's, just what's the language of the command itself? What is it actually saying? Let's do that with this one. What are some things the command just taken at face value it's saying? And I want to focus on three words, all right? Let's focus on the words holy and to and you. Holy and to and you. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It says that again at the, verse, uh, at the end of verse 11. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, when you hear the word holy, where does your mind go? Because we're listening to this, pretty much a room full of Gentiles, Christian perspective, New Testament perspective, when we hear the word keep the Sabbath day holy, what that can sound like to us is go to church on Sunday. Sunday is not their Sabbath. This is primarily first for the Israelites at the base of this mountain. The seventh day, what we call Saturday, that's their Sabbath. He says to keep it holy. What does it mean for something to be holy? And it, let me say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean more religious or more religious meetings. For something to be holy means it's different. It's set apart. It's set apart unto the Lord. Like in the tabernacle, a plate could be holy. It just means that that plate's different from common plates. That plate is set apart to the service of the Lord. 
God says this. This seventh day is a day. But it's different than the other six. On the other six, you work. But this one is different. It's distinct to me. Now, that's the second word, is to. Look at, look at the language of how God speaks about this. Look in verse, verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And now again, God says do all your work knowing that can't mean finish everything I, I possibly need to finish. Like who, who originally was given work? Adam and Eve. Before sin. Before the world was fallen. And what, what was their marching order? What was their job? To subdue the earth. You know, it's not like you can get through Friday afternoon with that and go, okay, the earth is subdued. So glad I got that done. Glad I can rest now. You had to put your work done down knowing there's undone work. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but, now get the language here, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's to the Lord your God. In other words, I want you to work to me. You're not just working to yourself. Work to me. Do your work unto me. Our work is part of how we love God. Again, work was given before sin. Work six days to me. On the seventh, it's Sabbath to me. Rest unto me. In other words, and I think this is, this is very important, it's relational. The rest that I'm calling you to is not just to do this good thing, but it's, it's because of your relationship with me, rest to me. And the other word I want you to notice is the word you in the rest of verse 10. On it you shall not do any work. Now, if it just stopped there, it would be easy because of what we're like for, you know, an Israelite maybe to think, okay, yeah, I'm going to rest today, but there's this thing I keep thinking about that's not done, so I'll get like my servant girl to do that. Or I'll get my son to do that. Or I'll get this mule to do that. And God says, when I say you, he speaks in the singular, but then he unpacks, what do I mean by you? On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. I mean, even the non-Israelite who doesn't necessarily believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, don't work him or her. Your whole community is to put their work down. So let me just, let me go 30,000 foot view. The command is not have six secular days and one religious day. That's not in the language of the commandment. The language of the commandment is work six days and then the seventh day rest unto me. That's the command. Now, I, you know, as, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about times of rest and enforced rest. And I was thinking about actually when I was, I think, about three or four years old. I know was, I, w- I wasn't in preschool. I know I was home. And uh, it was just my mom and I at home, and I was playing caveman. She, she had made just, she wrapped something around me that would look like, I guess, like, you know, like an animal skin for a caveman. So I had that and a club. And so I was being a caveman, and we had lunch together. And then after lunch, she said, okay, well, it's time for a nap. And, and actually, I remember saying this in our house. I'm a caveman. 
Like, you know, it's time for us to nap. I'm a caveman. And my mom pulled a Jedi mind trick on me. She said, I know, but cavemen have to rest. And I thought, I hadn't seen that angle on it before. (laughs) I get your point. Got in bed with my club. I actually remember doing that. And, um, you know, you think about, for, for most all of us, there was some parent or authority figure in your life that at, at, at some point enforced rest in our lives, like enforced nap time. Now, when you're a kid, there are all these things you want to do, and you feel like you're too old to take naps. You're just kind of going, you don't want to take the nap. But, okay, now where we are in life, you think, oh, oh, man, what I wouldn't do for there to be some way for an authority figure to step in between me and all the supervisors and emails and people sticking their head in my office when I'm trying to concentrate and do deep work and text and just the, the thought of someone stepping in and going, stop it. She's resting. He's resting. That's what this command is. This is the living God to ex-slaves Writing in stone the will of his people is that he is God. Not just saying to them, but in a sense saying to the people around them, my people, on the seventh day they stop and they rest. That's the command. And what about what we're calling the ditches? And where, where I'm getting this term from, I don't, I don't know who originated it. I've heard it ascribed to different people from the past, but... Christians over the century have said something to this effect. You've got this thing called the gospel. And the gospel means good news. And if we come together and say, all right, so, so what's the big point here? What's the thing that God wants us to know? If, if, if the takeaway is always obey better, well, that's not good news. Like if you're a failure and you disobey God and you blow it and you sin... Well, just try harder is not good news. That's not what we mean by the gospel. The gospel is what God has done for us through His Son. And here's the image. Christians have said if the gospel is like a road, this is the road of life. This is the road that's safe. There's ditches on either side of the road. And they look very different, but in some ways they're made of the same DNA, if I can mix metaphors. Ditch one is legalism. And ditch two is what we could call license. Legalism and license. And here's what legalism looks like. It looks like, listen, God is holy, holy, holy. And that's true. And these are not God's ten suggestions. These are God's laws. And that's true. And this is for our good, and it means business. God means business, and He cares about the details. And that's true. Okay, but now here's the problem, is then when you go the extra few steps and you say, so you better get it right or the hammer's going to fall. You better get it right if you want Him to like you. You better get the nitpicky details right if people are going to know that you belong to Him and you can go to heaven. That's legalism. And there's some really vivid pictures. Here's the thing. 
those ditches are there all the time for anything that God says, but something about the Sabbath really shows the ditches. And there's some vivid pictures of this in the New Testament with the Pharisees. And I'll give you one example. In Mark chapter 3, there's, a, there's an account of Jesus being in a, in a synagogue, and there are uh, Pharisees present, and there's a man there with a withered hand. It's really sad, you know, like how that would affect his work life and whatever else. Can't do anything about it. And so Jesus uses this as a teaching moment, and he looks at the man, and then he looks at the Pharisees, and, he's, and it's the Sabbath. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To preserve life or to kill? To destroy? What an easy test. You know, if, if the Messiah asked you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? You know, a great answer would be, yes, sir. And they won't answer. They won't answer that question because it's, it's, that, it's that mindset of, ooh, I might get this wrong, and I might step on a crack, and I might break somebody's back, and so they don't say anything to him. And it says in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus looked around at them in anger because of their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he restored it. And then what did the, what did the legalists do? Shout, praise be to God. It says they left there and they met with the Herodians to plot how they could kill him. Because legalism is not about relationship. It's about get the details right so I can go to heaven. That's a ditch. Now, I'm sensitive to that one because on the Sabbath, I personally have fallen into that one in my own Christian life. And I, I don't want you to fall in that ditch and I'd warn you about something. I think this sermon is going to be very frustrating to some of us. And this is rich fodder for community group discussions, but I think the more we talk about this and we start unpacking it, the questions are going to start bubbling up inside of us about, okay, well, wait. Well, what about the parent of young children? What about the mom of young children? Her work is never done. How does she have a Sabbath? I need a list of what I can do and not do on the Sabbath or what I can purchase on the Sabbath or what I can attend on the Sabbath. I, I will not be preaching lists. That is not preaching the gospel. Or I have clients, and my clients demand 24-hour, seven-day-a-week responsiveness. If I'm not responsive like that, I can't re retain this. I need to know what, I, what electronic communication should I do. What, what openness to social media should I... I'm not going to give lists. Beware the legalistic heart that wants the list. Now, that being said, there's this other ditch, and I would say that for the most part, the problems in this room are not so much ditch one. They may exist, but I would say the one with more cars <laughs> and people in it is ditch two, and that's license. And what would that look like? It might look like this from a New Testament perspective. Man, I am so glad that we believe in Jesus, and we are under grace. We are not under law. Does the New Testament say we are not under grace and not un that, that we're under grace and we're not under law? Does the New Testament say that? Yes. The question is, what do we mean by not under? Because if that means 
I'm not under the curse of the law anymore. The law can't punish me or condemn me anymore. And that's true. But if by under we mean I'm not under any requirement from God to do anything. Is that what the New Testament is saying? Now, here's the comeback of license. License could say, you know what? The fourth commandment is never quoted in the New Testament. Did you know that? And that's true. I looked that back up this morning just to make sure that was true. The fourth commandment is never quoted in the New Testament. That is true. And neither is the first. And neither is the second. And neither is the third. What we call the first table of the law is never quoted in the New Testament. Would you understand the work of Jesus to be that it doesn't matter now whether you have other gods before God. Beware license where we act as if we made one of God's commands on those stone tablets just kind of disappear into thin air. But how do you do it? Again, I can feel that's the question bubbling up inside of us. Okay, great. There's a command. We need to rest. Work six, rest one. How do you actually do it? And here's the thing. It's got to be something more than just stopping the activity of our work. And that's part of it. But it's got to be something deeper than that. Have you ever gone on vacation and you were looking so forward to it? And you went on your vacation and you got home and you thought, I'm so tired and I'm not just tired from the drive. I'm not just tired of that because I, I was with difficult family or I was taking care of a child or we hiked a bunch. I mean, I just, my insides never calmed down and now I've got to go back to work. Just this year, I took a day off one day. I take Fridays off because of, you know, because of my calling in the weekend. And uh, so I decided to get out of town and I went up to Asheville. So I went up to Asheville, and I I really can't remember what all was going on, but I woke up that morning, and I was churning. And I got in the car, and I was churning. And I got to Asheville, and I was churning. And I walked around with the hipsters, churning. And I went and got some farm-to-table lunch, churning. And sat in a coffee place and read, which is something fun for me to do, churning. And I drove home and pulled up in the driveway, churning. And I walked in and Dana said, how was your day off? And I said, I hated it. I hated the whole day. What bliss to be married to me. What joy. (laughs) I hated my day off because I got in that car restless. And here's the thing. Rationally, I know that what I'm about to say doesn't work, but I, I think that I was approaching it like, I will leave my town, I will not be working today, I will go to this fun, interesting place, and it will, like, infuse rest into me. It didn't. It can't. So where do you get real, I mean, real rest? Like, the difference between lying in bed, rolling, and all the circumstances are right, and I'm not resting, versus, like, deep REM, restorative I wake up and I feel good rest. How do you get rest like that for your soul? 
I want to look at one more word, and it's the word rest. In verse 11, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Now, that's, that's pointing back to Genesis 1 and 2. And I want to ask you a question that you may or may not have thought about. How did God rest? He doesn't have a body. And he doesn't have needs. God never gets exhausted. How did God rest? And if you read the Genesis account, here's what it describes. He creates the whole universe in six days. And then he stops creating. And he looks at what he's done. And he takes delight in it. And he says it's very good. And God doing that constituted God resting. And you might be saying, that's my point. You're singing my song. I don't feel rested because there's not this finished work for me to stare at. More emails, more texts, more conferences, more undone projects, more open loops. If you stare at your undone work, you will never rest. So what do we stare at? What the New Testament says is that as Jake said in the assurance of pardon, God sees us in our plight and knows that we cannot save ourselves. Like, listen to this language from Deuteronomy, that second passage. You shall remember, Israelites, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. The New Testament says we show up slaves. We are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to worldliness. We are enslaved to ourselves. And the only person who can free us is God. And when God saves someone, he doesn't just give them a better path for life. He breathes life into that person and rescues them from bondage and death, and brings that person to himself. Brings that person to himself. Who accomplished that for us? Jesus accomplished that for us. And when Jesus got to the end of accomplishing that for us, what did he say? It is finished. The only thing that will really give us soul rest is to stop. And this is not just a one day a week thing. This is hopefully our whole lives to stop and say, you know why I can't put work down? Because I want everyone to like me. And I want everyone to perceive me as competent. I want everyone to sign off on me. The reason I can't put down social media is because I need everybody to see how friendly and how available and how with it and how on top of things and how cheerful and how sunny and how available I am because I need them to approve of me. And all those are versions of, you know what, I need to be justified. You need to like me. You need to notice me. You need to approve of me to justify my existence. My boss, my supervisor... My other employees, they need to see how great an employee I am to justify my existence. And the gospel says, 
you are already justified. The face of the living God is looking at you saying, everything that must be done for you to stand before me and be seen as righteous has been done. I regard you as being as obedient as my son if you'll just trust him, if you'll just look to him. The work is already done. And the question is, am I just saying that I believe that? Or do I really believe that? How many of you heard about what happened a few weeks ago at the Ryder Cup? It was a practice round for the Ryder Cup before the actual competition started. And there was a 12-foot putt that the European team was struggling with. And they just kind of kept starting from the same mark. But for these practice rounds, you had people in the gallery and, and folks watching. And this American guy was heckling the European team because they couldn't sink this 12-foot putt. And he said, I could sink that putt. And one of the guys on the team finally said, be my guest. And so he brought him out from the gallery onto the, onto the green and handed him the putter. And then another member of the European team came up with a $100 bill and set it down like, you know, just, just to kind of sweeten the pot. Guy, David Johnson, looks around. I mean, he has totally stuck his neck out. And he sank the putt. The place explodes. You've got to watch it on video. It's unbelievable. It's posted on the Internet, so it actually did happen. Sinks the putt, place goes crazy. Now, it's hilarious, you know, that he said, I could do that, but that somebody had the presence of mind instead of just saying, oh, there's a heckler out there to say, prove it. Show me. And I don't want to diminish the fact that these aren't the ten suggestions. These are the ten commandments. God in his authority writes these on tablets of stone. But I want you to think about who we are. As believers in Jesus Christ in the new covenant who are not under the curse of the law, we come together in this room week after week, and what do we do? We sing, I'm not loved for what I do. We're not accepted for what we do. I'm not going to heaven for what I do. What if this command became to us... God's face looking at us, I hope with a smile saying, all right, prove it. Put your work down. And again, my, my purpose is not to say, so the day must start at midnight, or the day must start at 6 p.m., or it must be this particular cycle. But honestly, is there any cycle in your life of productivity to Him and then non-productivity to Him. If not, functionally, we're living like slaves. And Christ came to set us free. What if your closed laptop, what if your phone screened down, plugged in, what if a neat pile waiting on the day after the Sabbath? What if that was your act of liberation? 
Christ has finished the great work. We need significant margins to stop and look at it and say thank you that you don't love me on the basis of what I do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for our busy, workaholic, driven, distracted, restless hearts, point us to the one who can give us deep rest. We pray that over and over, not one day a week, but every day of the week, that we would look on this completed work that he's finished and delight in it, that everything that we need done has been done that that would transform our productivity those six days and it would energize us to put it down and rest. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.